Welcome everyone to the Family Medicine Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies within the field of family medicine and primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tanning. Hello and welcome back everyone to the Family Medicine Podcast. Good to be back in Truth Be Told Studios to record this intro. This is episode six with Dr. Andreas Edrick. He is a board-certified family physician and addiction medicine specialist. This conversation was recorded from his practice, which was not too far away from Rocky Vista University. And this is going to be released as a two-parter because Dr. Edrick was super generous with his time and we got really in depth onto two different aspects of family medicine. One was mental health and the other is addiction. So part one is largely about how he as a family practitioner began focusing on mental health and depression. And we talk about some super interesting treatments that he uses. And part two is more about his work in addiction medicine. So definitely stay tuned for part two if you're interested. We didn't really plan it out to be a a part one and a part two. It just kind of happened naturally like that. And you can definitely tell that Dr. Edrick is super passionate about everything he talks about. He's just got so much energy and, and clearly loves talking about mental health and addiction and educating the masses. And he's got great stories, great insights about family medicine, addiction, addiction medicine, mental health depression and treatment and so much more. This episode also features a significant amount of discussion of different medications and how and when to use them and things like that. So I realized it was necessary to have a disclaimer at some point in the show. So I'll give it now and in future episodes, we'll have it at the end of the recording. All conversation and information exchanged and contained in the Family Medicine Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board-certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. Okay, great. We can move along to the main event now. So everybody, please welcome Dr. Andreas Edrick. All right, I'm ready and we're recording. I got Dr. Edrick here in his office uh, in Greenwood Village. Is Greenwood that where Village, we are? that's right. Cool, right that's by right. the tech center outside right. of Denver, yep. Colorado. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This is an away game for me. Happy to be here. Happy to join you. Yeah. Um, Well, I know you have so much to say about your your life and work, and I thought let's just uh, touch on your background uh, for a little bit before we really get into it. So if you want to tell us uh, where you're from and what your upbringing was like. Absolutely. So I started um, med school. I did med school here at CU. Went to CU Boulder for undergrad. Did pretty much everything here. So I'm a local kid. I applied to one medical school back then. That was it. Really? So bust, all bust or go home. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. That would be just crazy. It was kind of crazy. Yeah, it was Was it crazy back then? It was awesome, though. It was awesome. 
And right away, I kind of always knew that I wanted general medicine to begin with, you know? Mm -hmm. So med school was just, you know, trying everything out. And even back then, you know, you got a little bit of exposure to different stuff, but not a whole lot, you know, like, you know, a little smattering of different things and everybody had their opinion on what was better. And so it wasn't really representative until I got into residency. So I did my residency at St. Anthony's, yep. uh, central and St. Anthony's North. Denver, yeah, yeah. Everything here local. And, uh, my residency was really heavy in, um, mental health. It was just heavily weighted, you know, like mm -hmm. some residencies are more into like ob or pediatrics. Ours was really heavily weighted. Did you know in. that going in? You know, not so much, not so much. I mean, I guess I knew it was there, but I didn't really know how it would affect me for the most part. And I thought it was just a really well-rounded residency. I loved it. That was really great, great bunch of people. And they really focused in on quality of life for people, not just, you know, how to get cholesterol down or whatever yeah. and how to run medications. And so I really got a good sense for it and I enjoyed it. Back then I really wanted to do kind of all encompassing family medicine, yeah. uh, not the OB part. I kind of dropped that off early on, mm -hmm. but for some reason the mental health was just a real interest. My first practice um, after residency was in, um, out in Littleton in a group and I quickly realized that you know, the, the regular medical stuff is fun, but all of a sudden I began to realize that mental health and psychiatry was just really intriguing. And I didn't know why, but I got a lot of patients with those problems. Um, and at the time, the challenge was that there weren't that many medications out 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, we had Prozac and some of the other amitriptyline, some of the older meds. And there was always that worry about are they safe long term and so forth, you know. Right. It just and hadn't been studied that much yet. studied. Yeah, been, exactly. Hadn't, hadn't right. seen a long term anything right. from it right. because it had only been around didn't for exist. a couple years. One of my first patients <clears throat> was like a 10-year-old girl who had severe phobias and severe anxiety to the point where she couldn't come out of her room and at that point I thought man look we're treating all these other problems but really the stuff that debilitates a lot of people is the mental health stuff that's the quality of life when we talk about what's important in medicine it's quality of life it's not how many years can you live or whatever um, it's really quality of life and with this 10 year old girl I thought man why aren't we doing something and nobody else is doing anything and I thought you know what I can do the basic stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we can look at some of the serotonin meds like Prozac, you know, and back then it was considered kind of, you know, still early on to treat a 10 year old with Prozac. Mm. And, uh, and I talked to the mom, I talked to the kid and I'm like, guys, what if, what if there is hope that we can get you to that point where you can leave your room, you can go to school, you can play with your friends, you know, how awesome would that be? And we have a medicine that's been pretty well established even then, but we were still scared of it. You know, we we're scared of all these treatments. And I think the one thing we kind of lost sight of was even though there's risks to medications and treatments, we sometimes forget that there's a risk of not treating the problem. So what's the risk of right. social isolation for 20 years? Figure that one out. That's pretty devastating. Yeah. So back then, you know, I started her on Prozac. It must have been like two milligrams, some really tiny amount, you know. Okay. Classically now, a lot of people are on 20, 40, 60, 80 milligrams. But I said, let's just start. I mean, what's the rush anyways, right? Let's just start right. with two if nothing she's happens. she's also a smaller person, right? Smaller she person. Was 10, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although sometimes it doesn't match. The dose doesn't always match up in mental health with okay. the person's size or severity, which is really weird. Hmm. Um, I always maintain the, the correct dose is the lowest dose that gets the job done, period. Yeah. 
um, whatever that is, but we don't want to not get the job done, you know? Right. Yeah. So I started her on two milligrams and every couple of weeks we'd ramp it up a little bit. It took about a month or two, but slowly her symptoms resolved and she began, uh, she was able to leave her room. She was able to go to school, hang out with her friends. It was a, it was a mind blowing experience to kind of see that like wow factor. And I just fell in love with it. I thought this is so cool to be able to give people that quality of life back. And at the same time, yeah, you got to be careful like anything else, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but we monitored that, you know. Every single month, we're like, okay, where are we at? Is the, are you still? Is it, is the benefit still there? You know, I mean, Prozac's been out for a while, even before about twenty years ago, so it's probably okay long term. But we all agreed, man, compared to the horrifying life she led before, like this is mind altering. So I started to see more and more of that. And weirdly enough, I also got people in who had addictions. Right. But they don't teach you any of that stuff at all. Like our back when I was in med school, there was no training on addiction. Yeah. The um, pain was another vital sign, you know. Sure. And back then the push was, well, go ahead and just treat the pain. And you said weirdly enough, yeah. were you being kind of tongue in cheek there by saying that mental health yeah. issues and addiction go hand in hand? They go hand yeah. in hand. Um, there are no patients with addiction issues who don't have mental health issues that just doesn't exist you know mm -hmm. uh and even back when i trained with the society of addiction medicine they said well if you don't feel comfortable with the mental health part make sure you refer that out to a psychiatrist and i thought how is that even possible you know that's like saying uh, uh, you know go ahead and treat heart attacks as a cardiologist but if you don't feel comfortable with the cholesterol part refer that out you know like okay. those are integral yeah. those are related those are the same that you can't you can't separate those yeah. you know right and yeah and they don't treat the reason i found it so ironic was this right um when you go through training on anything like for example a surgeon they teach you how to go into the abdomen find the appendix remove it and then get out of the abdomen and as you leave you always want to make sure that you can deal with a complication what if you nick an artery here's what you do what mm -hmm. if you nick the bowel here's what you do what if you can't find the appendix here's what you do right. um if they get an infection afterwards here's what you do in fact we spend more time probably dealing with how to deal with side effects and complications hmm. than the actual procedure you know that's an interesting thought yeah i mean Going in and actually doing the procedure is pretty straightforward. It's what are all the things that could go wrong that mm -hmm. we occupy most of our time with on all diseases. Same with diabetes, same with blood pressure, you know. Okay, you learn how blood pressure medicine works. You know how to cholesterol medicine. But what do you do when there's a complication, you know? Mm -hmm. That's much more It doesn't more go exactly as planned. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. And in our world, you, you realize that after doing medicine for many years, there's way more exceptions than rules. And the wise doctor is the one that's learned how to deal with all the crazy complications. Um, doing the actual procedure is usually pretty simple. But look at this. We, we teach doctors how to treat pain, acute pain after surgery or chronic pain after a back you know, problem for years and years. But do we ever treat, teach doctors how to deal with complications with that medicine? We, we teach them how to deal with complications when it comes to Lipitor, cholesterol medicine. Mm -hmm. Oh, what if they get muscle breakdown, myalgias? What if they get 
you know, body aches? What if they get, you know, rhabdo from Lipitor? Well, here's what you do. Here's how you manage it. Here's how you monitor it, you know? Right. Um, even other psychiatric medications. Oh, you've got them on lithium. You know, well, make sure to watch that thyroid because the thyroid can go down with lithium. Make sure you're watching their kidney function because that can be dangerous. Make sure to, you know, if they're suicidal, that you make sure their meds are locked up or their parents are watching them because that can happen. But honestly, how to treat bipolar with lithium? Pretty easy. It takes like two seconds to learn that. Mm-hmm. Learning all the complications, that takes a lot more work. And that's why they teach us that stuff. But, but So what are you saying? We don't get the, uh, the education on uh, the side effects and how to manage that? Right. Nobody was teaching anybody, here's how to treat pain management. Here's how to start people on opioids. But nobody taught anybody about, here's what to do when they get dependent on it. Here's what to do when they get addicted on it. You why know? do you think that is? What, you know, why, do you, why do we teach that when it comes it, to an right. appendectomy, but not Nothing you know, else. opioids? I think part of it is kind of the stigma and the avoidance of not wanting to deal with the problem and wanting to admit that there is a problem, you know? So let me back it up a little bit and I'll give you a good example. Mm-hmm. So I, just out of my own interest, I started working with the American Society of Addiction Medicine, AZAM, and they're um, uh, the board that kind of does all the training for addiction medicine. And then they have the American Board of Addiction Medicine that has their own board exam so you can get board certified in it. However, addiction medicine has never been acknowledged to be a real specialty. Hmm. It was always, right. you can't you know, go into a residency in addiction medicine. There is no residency get there from somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. So up until now, we've always kind of sidelined addiction medicine. Like, oh, it's just kind of a, a fun thing some people do on the side, you know? Sure. Not like family medicine is its own specialty. Even yeah. sports medicine is, a, is an official specialty from family medicine, you know? Okay, yeah. Internal medicine, pediatrics, are all individual specialties. But addiction was always kind of like, that's just kind of a side interest that some people have, you know? Yeah. Until literally two years ago when the uh, American Board of Preventive Medicine, the one that acknowledges all medical specialties, finally said, hey guys, maybe this is a real problem. Maybe addiction actually is a problem. This is only after about 10 years of having a severe opioid epidemic that kills 60,000 people a year, mm-hmm. which incidentally is the same as 130, 747 airplanes crashing into the ground. Jeez, yeah. But it took this long for them to realize, oh, maybe this is an actual problem. And maybe we should honor the fact that doctors that are specializing in this actually should be recognized as a true specialty on its own because it's big enough of a problem. Yeah. And finally it became board certified as a true specialty. So I board certified twice, actually. Right. Once for AZAM and once for the Preventive Medicine Board. And that was just board. two years ago, you said? Yeah, exactly. Just even two years ago. Even though you were practicing addiction medicine yeah. before that. Yeah. In How fact, there's, there's not even um, to, to, to get board certified before... Um, the AZM had required that you would document while you're doing your own studies, it was kind of a self-directed thing, um, that you had to document that you were working with patients with addictions and mental health issues, mm-hmm. and you had to kind of log how many patients you were working with and what kind of problems they had. So that was part of your credentialing process to show the American Society of Addiction Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, hey, I'm, I'm actually working with enough people to get the experience and that allows you to go sit for the board exam for the American Board of, of, um, of Addiction Medicine. Okay. That was before. And so now there's finally residencies that are starting to be developed. I think there's like two now. 
Okay, so you are, can just yeah. apply to a residency in addiction right. medicine. Exactly, you can. Wow, I didn't exactly. know that. Yep. You have to have um, a primary specialty as well, so a primary care, family Internal, medicine, yeah. yep, yep, or even you can come at it from the psychiatry standpoint okay, as well. Right. Yeah. But my, my love and my passion really developed because I just noticed that, in at least in mental health, there is so much quality of life there that people get from treating their mental health disorders. And there's such an unfounded fear of not treating it. It, it, it was so disturbing to me. I said, you know, from a family medicine perspective, I said, why is it that we treat every part of your body one way, but when it comes to your brain, we just completely ignore it? Why do we do that? You know, uh, if you injure your back, how do we treat that? Well, we use Advil, Motrin, muscle relaxers, and then if that's not enough, then we ship you over to physical therapy and you learn exercises and work on this muscle and avoid overusing that muscle. It makes perfect sense. If it's really bad, we'll throw some Percocet at you, but not long, because then mm -hmm. you'll get addicted. The real workhorses, the anti-inflammatories, physical therapy. Oh, and then you want to look backwards and say, well, what caused the back injury? Maybe it was genetics, maybe you have scoliosis. Maybe it's an environmental thing, like you lifted too many rocks the weekend before, mm -hmm. or it's both, you know? Sure. Why don't we do the same with the brain? And that's when I was in family medicine, I thought, this is the same thing. Why don't we just do the same thing for the brain? And we say, well, there's genetic causes that cause, uh, that can contribute towards depression, anxiety, bipolar. And then there's environmental triggers, you know, life, marriages, work, relationships, stressors. Mm -hmm. um, and then the output is exactly the same. Sometimes we use medications. We don't use Advil and an we use anti-inflammatories for the brain. Call it whatever you want, you know. Mm -hmm. We use medicines to help uninflame the brain. Uh, and then we do physical therapy for the brain. We don't right. call it physical therapy. We call it cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever. But it's the same. And if it's really bad, then maybe we'll use Valium or something, you know, to just get solve, you know, to really settle your brain down immediately, but not long term because super addictive again. You don't want yeah. to rely on Valium. You want to rely on maybe the anti-inflammatory, the medications for the brain and the therapy for the brain to really do the work. And I use the word anti-inflammatories for the brain because for so long it's been a misconception that these medicines, they call them antidepressants. Right. And they're not antidepressants. Um, that's just because they called them that back in the 40s or 50s, but that's not what they are. Um, Advil is not a knee medication. Sure. It's an anti-inflammatory. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I never thought about it like that. Right. Yeah. Prozac came out and all they all they looked at was depression. So they just call it an antidepressant, you know? Right. So what else is it doing? Well, here's the thing, right? So Paxil came out shortly afterwards, same family. And Paxil realized that, oh, there's these people, not only depression, but they got anxiety too. Why don't we brag that we're really good about anxiety and get a market share and we'll just brag that we're the anxiety specialists, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, Zoloft came out and started bragging about how good they were with this thing like PMS, you know? They're no better though, okay. but that was their market share. And to this date, a lot of patients that come from an OB-GYN office get put on Zoloft because that's kind of how the marketing ran, you know? Right. We're just used to 
putting yeah. them on Zoloft. Right, exactly. Interesting. Advil I'm on is, the edge of my seat, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Advil is not better for your knee, and Aleve isn't better for your back. You know, they're anti-inflammatories. Yes, they have little quirks, and some people say, oh, Aleve is great, but Advil is terrible, or Motrin's great, Aleve doesn't work, you know. Whatever. Those are just individual little, you know, idiosyncrasies on how these meds work, you know. Sure. Sometimes Prozac works and Zoloft doesn't, but they're all, I like to call them anti-inflammatories for the brain, because that's yeah. really what they are. Okay, so when you have a patient that... Um comes in needing medication. Mm -hmm. How do you decide which medication is going to use? Are you going to, you know, yeah. to use your metaphor, are we going Motrin, are we going Advil, are we going That's perfect. Prozac, are we going That's whatever That's a great else? metaphor. Yeah. Academy of Psychiatry looked at that question when it came to mood stabilizers and bipolar. I go, well, where do you start, you know? <laughs> Their answer was very simple. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. Start somewhere. Okay. Base it very maybe helpful. on, yeah, base <laughs> it on side effect profile. Well, and it makes sense, you know? How do you mm -hmm. choose Advil versus Motrin versus like, well, maybe you would choose Celebrex if they have a history of heartburn, acid indigestion, because that doesn't bug your stomach. Maybe you choose Aleve because it lasts a little bit longer and Motrin's kind of annoying because you have to take a lot more pills of it. And people who aren't good at taking pills tend to not do that, you know? Mm -hmm. But can you get the job done with all of them? Yeah, technically you probably can, you know? And so with these things, the way I choose is, I start, I go back to basics and you got to remember in, in our business, newer medications are not better medications. And, and that is so counter to the culture from all the drug reps coming in, always proclaiming newer and better. Every second commercial on TV is ask your doctor if this newer medication right. is better They're to you. It's certainly more expensive, They're right? certainly more expensive. Is that, is that, yeah. uh, you know, always. true for the most part that always the newer true. stuff is going to be more always expensive? Always true. Yeah. And listen, it's the same with everything else in life. Why would it be different with medications? Newer computers are not better. Windows XP Pro was perfectly fine until Vista came along. Old airplanes are just fine. Look at the new 700 Max 8. There's not, newer is not better. Sometimes tried and true tested things are the way to go. And part of the reason is that when there is a force that pushes newer technologies and newer medications and that force is not a hundred percent um robustly ethical or a hundred percent on the side of the patient or on the side of safety mm -hmm. that becomes a problem because then i don't know what the truth is and there's a lot of examples of medications that get pulled off the market because all of a sudden some problem shows up and now you got egg on your face because you recommended some medicine to a patient who's suffering and maybe it's worked for them, but now we say, well, we gotta pull you off because other side effects and complications are known. We didn't know that. Here's right. the thing, when you buy a house, I know a lot of builders might not always be the most honest about their building techniques, but there's one thing for sure, if I buy a 30-year-old house, I'm pretty sure that foundation is not going to go slide off the hill. Like, wherever it is, is pretty much where it's going to be. And I, sure. can, I can know that the test of time pretty much brings out most problems. And so when I'm talking to a parent of a 10-year-old and we say, hey, is it really safe to use medications? I want to really, with full conscience and... and, and, and um, really ability to be able to say to the parent, I really feel this is most likely a very safe medication for your kid long-term. 
And we know that because it's been out there for a long time and it's stood the test of time. And yeah. that's something that parents find reassuring because if you put their kid on something that's new that ends up having a problem, that's pretty devastating, you know? Totally. And, and it's I'm, not... I, you know, go ahead. It's not proven that the newer meds are any better. They brag about how they're better, but honestly, in all my years, I've prescribed most of these medications, and oddly enough, I find that, you know, every time we come back to the tried and true ones, people seem to not have problems, and they seem to work just fine, um, and they're cheaper, and mm -hmm. what if people lose their insurance, which happens nowadays, yeah. they can still afford to buy that medicine, that's not a bad deal. And I find yeah. myself naturally kind of um, migrating to that. You know, we always want to say don't, don't treat patients necessarily just the way you would take medicines yourself. But sometimes when things are logical and you see good results and you think to yourself, that's kind of the way I would do it for myself or my family, right. then it's kind of obvious and it follows that that might be what you should do for your patients too, you know? Yeah, and I like thinking about medicine in that way that it seems, you know, uh, intuitive yeah. and, um, and logical. Yeah. I don't know if I'm exactly with you on that I'd rather be in an airplane from the 1930s than, yeah. than now, but... Right? But... <laughs> Do you fly? I ha I've never... I'm yeah. not a pilot. Right, but, right, but right. I, yeah. But I do fly. I am. And I've flown the old stuff and I've flown the new stuff. You're a pilot? Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't so know. So I've flown the old stuff and I've flown the new stuff. Well, I and feel I'll like I brought a, a knife to a gunfight here. Yeah, no. Right? And um, my instructor for power planes used to always tell me, he said, I don't teach anybody unless you have a sailplane a glider license first. Mm -hmm. And I said, why is that? And he said, first you have to learn how to fly a plane. And then we give you the engine, but not the other way around. And so that's important. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. Learn the basics first. Learn the basics first. Yeah. And man, I, I want, my head's spinning. I want to go a couple of different ways here, but yeah. I, I kind of want to ask you about um, how that, how it works when there's antidepressants that mm -hmm. main side effect is that they cause deeper depression and suicidality. Right. Well, that's a good question because a lot of parents say, well, the, the FDA said that it can cause more suicidal ideation. Here's the problem. They had to turn that comment backwards. And they said, well, darn it, it looks like kids with depression who are not treated are even more suicidal than kids that are treated, mm. which is not really a surprising thing because that's like saying people on cholesterol medicines have a higher risk of heart attacks. Well, obviously, because they're a pre-selected population, that's right. why they're there, you know? Yeah, yeah. What happens is um, when, when kids, especially children, are on in the dumps with depression, there's two components of depression, of any, I should say any mood disorder, depression, okay. anxiety, whatever. Those two components are this. Number one, they have low energy. And number two, they have a depressed mood, whichever one it is. Um, and so initially they come into you like these depressed slugs that just are just down and out, low energy, don't want to do anything. Yeah, they've had suicidal thoughts, but they're just so blah. You begin treating them with a serotonin medication and they will improve. However, here's what happens. Energy and mood don't improve at the same time. Mm. The first thing that improves is your energy level. And then two weeks later, slowly, gradually, the mood starts to lift, right. so which is a, a problem. You had a lot of energy, but you're still down in the dumps. Right. Uh, now you've got a kid, potentially, who didn't have the energy to try to commit suicide, 
he's got the energy level, but the mood is still low. Now he might have the energy to go act on some of his impulses, his, his um, suicidal thoughts. So it's more that the treatment might unmask the energy needed to try to commit suicide rather than it doesn't cause suicidal ideation. I see. It sort of brings it, to, it allows it to, to bloom, if you will. Yeah, that makes sense. Is yeah. it usually within the first couple of weeks that yep. we see those uh, increases yeah, in, in suicidal ideation? The first two weeks or so seems to be, because once the mood comes up, you're golden. You've got both energy and mood higher up. They're usually doing fine. It's just that first couple of weeks and it's a bummer that energy comes up before the mood does. But that's just how they work, you know. Yeah. So what's the yeah. what's the way to uh, either you know combat that or, or safeguard against that as a provider? Yeah. Number one, education and communication. So in my office, all my patients are usually teenagers or young adults. They've all got an app for my for my for my medical record, and they text me, and I'll tell them I need little updates every couple of days on how you're doing, you know. And I need to know if you're feeling suicidal. And I'm going to ask you if you feel suicidal. And I expect you to text me back because I know you know how to text. So if you're not answering, I'm going to know it. And I'm going to start calling you. Or if I don't get a hold of you, I'm going to call your parents. You know, But I need an answer. And if I say, hey, are you suicidal? I'm going to educate you on what that means. So if I say, you know, is it passive suicidal ideation or is it active? I need to educate that kid on what that means. Passive suicidal ideation just means, oh, I wish I wasn't alive. Life would be better if I wasn't here. I'm just so tired of all this. That's just passive ideation. It's a very normal thing. It's a very common thing. We don't need to freak out about it. Yeah. We need to be aware of it. Especially take, in that age group. In that age group, yeah. yeah. We just need to take note of it, be aware of it, and track it. However, active suicidal ideation, when a kid says, okay, I feel like I've got a plan or, you know, I, I, if I did it, I'd probably hang myself. Or if I did it, uh, I know there's a stash of meds here. My parents, well, I would probably take the bunch of meds or whatever. All of a sudden we have a plan that becomes a super dangerous thing that has to be acted on. So when I ask these kids and I educate the parents on it too, because parents get really sometimes really um, worried about like, oh, should I ask my kid if they're suicidal? That might plant a seed. It does not. It is the exact opposite. Right. It allows your kid to know that you're thinking about it. And most kids want to be discovered when they're suicidal. They don't want to be, they just don't really know how to reach out. Yeah. But when people do reach out and say, hey, do you feel suicidal? Like point blank, gotta ask them face to face, point blank. Do you feel like killing yourself? Don't talk around the issue. Oh, would you be better off? No, just like, do you wanna die? <laughs> yes or no? Mm -hmm. And if you do, hey, is it just passive? Like I'm just tired of life? Well, that's something we can work with, you know? Or is it active? Like, yeah, I'm starting to get plans. Like, I think I would do it like this. Now it's more urgent. But it's the same with any medical problem. There are some medical problems we treat at home bronchitis, a mild pneumonia, but then there are certain levels where we have to go in the hospital, you know? Yeah, That's the same for the brain. We don't want to ignore that just because we're afraid to ask the question, you know? Because talking to a parent of a kid who's killed himself is way, way, way worse. Yeah, That's not acceptable, you know? And one of my problems, obviously, in my practice is when you ask kids like, hey, when did your symptoms start up? When did you start feeling sad and depressed or anxious or OCD or anger, whatever it was, the answer is usually early on in life, you know, middle school, elementary school, middle school, high school. Mm -hmm. um, because here's the thing, if kids don't have help treating their emotional symptoms, they're usually pretty resourceful, more so now than in the old days, but they're gonna go find help. 
-hmm. and they're going to find it however teenagers find help, which is not always the best way. Right. And parents tend to be kind of annoying to a teenager. So a teenager or a middle schooler might prefer to the advice of Johnny down at locker number 27, who's a pretty cool kid because we all know that. Yeah. And he has an answer. And it's pretty simple because his dad uses it and it's pretty safe. That's called weed and, you know, fixes everything. And shoot, if his parents are taking it and it's safe for them, it must be safe for me. So then they start doing weed, you know. Right. They'll find some alternative suboptimal way of doing it and then kind of railroad it in that. Yeah. I want to ask you about how your practice is set up because you have mentioned it a couple times. that mm -hmm. this is, um, and, we're, and we're here in, at your practice yeah. right now. So it's just... Um, and I also don't want to forget about circling back to marijuana and especially yeah. legalization in Colorado right. and medical marijuana. Yeah. We'll, I guess we'll get to that in a, in a minute here. Oh, yeah. But uh, so it's just you as a provider and a PA. Is I'm that right I'm just here? a solo guy. I love working on my own. I've got a couple of amazing PAs that work with me. I've been very blessed with that. And a lot of the PAs that I've worked with, these gals are just so awesomely interested in this stuff. They pick it up. They eat it up, they live it, they learn it, and it's something that you learn on the fly. You won't find anybody who's pre-trained in treating addiction medicine right. or mental health, really. It takes a certain amount of desire and self-desire to learn it, um, and also a certain element of compassion. You either have it or you kind of don't have it, you know? Yeah. And uh, I've been very blessed in that this is how it's worked out. I'm now to the point where my passion for mental health, psychiatry, addiction medicine is such that we've actually stopped accepting regular patients, you know, like right. for just PCP patients and regular stuff. We only accept patients that have addiction and mental health needs. Mm -hmm. Once we have them, then I'll take care of their regular family medicine needs too. Um, but for the most part, we're sort of phasing that out partially because it's my passion and I'm seeing there's such a huge need for it that I figured you know, I'm one of the few guys doing it, it probably behooves me to really focus in on it because there's a lot of other people that can treat diabetes and blood pressure, you know, sure. um, that don't enjoy treating mental health and addiction. But since there's such a need and that is my passion, I probably ought to narrow down and really kind of focus in on it so that I can use every hour that I have for that direction, you know. Definitely. And I... I've talked to other people who said that in um, Colorado, um, family practitioners get a huge load of mental health problems right. in their patient population. Right. Um, why do you Why do you think that is? Is it more so in Colorado than other places? No, I doubt it. I doubt it. I think we're just getting better at asking patients. You know, mm -hmm. and so I, I travel around. I I, ha I I do little talks and and lunches with a lot of different family practices. Um, or even uh, surgical specialty groups that do pain management and, and deal with addictions and mental health issues. And I, I talk to them about how to deal with these things, or at least I let them know, that, hey, you can, you can take care of certain things on your own. And if you got uncomfortable, that's what I'm here for. Reach out, ask a question, you know. If you feel like you're getting stumped, uh, then refer the patient over. You keep doing the family medicine thing, and we'll co-manage the um, the mental health part or the addiction part, you know. And because I'm just more experienced and I've got the the the, the passion for it, um, I'm happy to help out manage some of the the uh, multiple drug regimens necessary. And that's the thing we don't we don't treat anything from just one angle, you know. We mm -hmm. treat everything from multiple angles, and I've always um, um, maintained that every job 
has its tools and you got to use the right tools for the right job. And sometimes family practitioners are comfortable doing one or two medications. I almost call them antidepressants, but (laughs) mood medications, anti-inflammatories for the brain. But sometimes they don't feel comfortable mixing and matching two or three or four different ones, you know? And that's where I usually step in and say, yeah, we can definitely manage and match, mix and match different, just like we do for diabetes. This, this medicine works from this angle. This medicine works from this angle. And the third medicine works from a completely different angle. And it's efficient that way because you, you get a better, um, a better mechanism with less side effects. You know, it's like giving a kid Tylenol and Motrin for their ear infections. You, know, you alternate. You use both because they work from different mechanisms and it's more efficient that way. And we do right. that. Does that know? ever kind of crash and burn on you that two different uh, providers are managing a patient even though they're not managing the same things? Or right. at least on paper, they're not supposed to be managing the same things gotcha. about the patient. For the most part, once people refer somebody over for mental health or addiction, I'll kind of take over on the mental health meds altogether. Okay. And they'll just manage the family medicine part. Or I'll just transfer them back and say, look, they've been stable for a year or two. Here's their meds. You want to just keep running what we're doing. And if there's an issue, bring them back and we'll reconsult. Or So you're right. They I don't do. start tinkering with No. Your... Yeah, exactly. I like to keep it. I do like to keep everything kind of under one lid, you know. Sure. But we do the Ideally, same for, yeah. yeah, we do the same for other specialties is somebody has a crazy difficult thyroid and now they're seeing an endocrinologist you know we kind of say look your endocrinologist will run all your different thyroid things and we'll just kind of keep our hands off of that one you know yeah but that's reasonable it's the same with everything else you know sure um cardiology might be a little different where we mix and match you know they're doing the heart failure we're still doing the cholesterol and blood pressure piece you know yeah but it, it just depends on everybody's comfort level you know but yeah good communication is critical to if somebody's changing medications on you. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned a couple of things that uh, make me want to ask you about um, some of the tools that you use because you said you want to use the right tool for the right job. Yeah. You also talked kind of at length about um, newer medications not always being, you know, effective. Right. Or the Right. Or right in a lot of different ways. Right. But I know you also kind of are at the forefront of a couple of different ways to work on treating depression. Right. One of which is I'm going to get this right. Yeah. Transcranial magnetic That's stimulation. Right. Yep, Did exactly, I get that right? exactly. A lot of syllables. Yeah, so if you look at sort of how do we treat a, a problem properly, we come at it from non-medication treatments and medication treatments mostly because yeah. that's kind of all there is. So when it comes to the medication treatments, we we have our serotonin meds, we have our norepinephrine meds, our dopamine meds, our D3 meds, some of the antipsychotics, and you, oh, on and on and on. Those are excellent ways of treating mental health problems. But then you look at the non-medication treatments, which you got to do just the same. I always tell patients, like, understand this. Medications are not the be-all, end-all. Um, a medication is not better than cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy is not better than getting proper sleep. It's like saying, I'm cooking a soup, which is more important, the oregano, the chicken stock, the water, or adding heat to the pot. They're all equally important in their own right, and you better get the recipe correct, because that's the only thing that matters is the recipe. Sometimes medications are appropriate, sometimes they're totally not appropriate. Sometimes therapy is appropriate, sometimes focusing on a person's sleep is important. You have to get all these things. But when we look at the non-medication treatments, I think what's important is to say with all the, even the, the older medications, the principle is still true. Use the least amount of medication and the medications you use, use the safest ones first and the least safe ones, preferably not at all. 
Sure. But the principles still use the least amount to get away with because you can use, if you're, if you're optimizing all of your non-medication treatments like therapy and making sure they're getting proper sleep hygiene and avoiding alcohol and getting exercise so their own endorphins are built up, then you can truly say, we've done everything and now we're going to use medications and we know that you we're using the least amount. It's not like we're just sitting on the couch and using a ton of Prozac. Sure. Now, transcranial magnetic stimulation comes in. Yeah. In a slightly it's called TMS. TMS or exactly. RTMS. R RTMS means repetitive. Okay. Um, but the principle is still resetting the brain neurons in a, such a way that when they recover, um, there's an improvement, and we don't totally understand how that works. Okay. It's similar to electroshock therapy, ECT. ECT is still probably one of the best ways to treat stuff like depression. Really? It has like the best success rate. Major long depression term. that's been major refractory depression. to yep. medication treatments? Exactly. Is that or even, yep, or even indication? It's an indication, absolutely. Or even bipolar. Um, we've used um, electroshock therapy on patients, even pregnant patients. It's safe for the baby. Uh, there's no hmm. medication side effects for the newborn. So when somebody's really bad, then we can do electroshock. The problem with electroshock therapy is it's annoying. It's extremely expensive. It requires anesthesia. You got to be in the hospital and you kind of lose a lot of memory around the time of the shock, you know? Right. And so you kind of get this amnesia Seems concerning. Thing. Yeah, I mean, exactly. On, to a yeah. lay person, it yeah. sounds, it sounds exactly. a little uh, heavy. Right, right. Yeah. But it recovers, but it's just annoying because for period of time you feel like you just don't have a memory like an alzheimer's person you know okay and you have to have good family support to manage your life while that's stabilizing right the nice thing about transcranial magnetic stimulation is it's a similar kind of a principle where we hit the prefrontal cortex with a magnetic wave that resets the neurons and allows improvement in the, especially depression, which is really where it's been studied mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, but it can be used in other things too. Yeah, you mentioned so, bipolar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, for what? TMS, not so much bipolar. Oh, TMS will work for like obsessive compulsive anxiety. Uh, right. Certain things are approved by the FDA. Mm -hmm. So, for example, TMS is approved for major depressive disorder, but that just means there's been enough studies and enough fees paid to get that approval. You know, sure. it doesn't mean it doesn't work for off-label uses like anxiety and OCD, which it does. Sure, the is cool, insurance covering this? Yeah, the, here's the cool part. Once it got approved, um, it gets covered. So um, most insurances will pay for it. Now, the cool part is the American Academy of Psychiatry said um, that TMS is a reasonable second-line treatment for major depressive disorder. So say you fail one medication trial, it's not unreasonable to go to TMS. Cool. Totally not unreasonable. Safe, really no side effects. Um, however, the problem is the insurances aren't quite so quick and keen to pick up the payment. So oh. they'll say, well, even though it's approved a second line, we don't want to pay for it until you fail three or four different serotonin meds uh, at proper doses, at proper durations, while you're doing therapy at the same time, while you're standing on your head or whatever yeah. other requirements. So totally. it, yeah, it takes a lot more work to get that to, to but be But let's approved. say somebody's going to a, a TMS session, are mm -hmm. they kind of, is it, do you do it here? So what, what? So the way it works is this, basically. Yeah, I work with a group, TMS Centennial, that that has a machine, Brains Way, and we basically, um, I'll set the patient up, I'll find the the right spot on the brain with the machine by putting the magnet in different parts on the prefrontal cortex and actually sending impulses through, and then watching the homunculus move as certain fingers twitch or certain mouth parts twitch. Hmm. So depending on where that magnet is, so they're they're wearing a. a 
device. Exactly. And exactly. It's, it's, I'm pointing to my forehead, but it's yeah. It's just kind of left uh, frontal precortex. Okay. Exactly. And um, I'll I'll place it anatomically in one position. Send pulses through. Observe hand and finger motions and twitches, and depending voluntary finger motions exactly okay. involuntary. Once I hit the pulse through, oh, involuntary. Yep, I'll oh, see okay. I'll see a finger twitch or a thumb twitch, and if you look at the homunculus, you'll see um, on the brain the motor cortex. If you go down the motor cortex, you'll 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 go from the arms and then the uh, the legs and then to the arms and then to the face. And then uh, eventually down to like the tongue, you know. Yep. And depending on how far down that motor cortex you go, you'll stimulate those you portions. You can decide where yep. you're controlling. Yeah, so I okay. can tell where I am in the motor cortex based on which finger is jumping, or if their if their tongue starts to twitch or whatever, you yeah. know. And then based on that, we move traditionally a number of centimeters forward to the prefrontal cortex, um, and that is the zone where that's responsible for the major depressive disorder. Um, the treatment itself entails, once we find the spot, it gets locked in. The, the machine has certain position settings, so it can be reproduced over and over and over. Yeah. Uh, and then the session itself um, involves the magnet essentially sending an impulse um, through to the brain okay. and sort of resetting those neurons in like five second intervals where it, it, um, it'll hit it almost like a woodpecker hammering on a on a tree and it feels and it feels like that too it's like a really it's a pretty firm knocking feeling you know huh. almost like an electrical knocking sensation it's actually it's not, pretty it's un- not a sharp sensation though yeah it's, it's uncomfortable it's okay. definitely uncomfortable okay and uh patients kind of get used to it um and so it's like a four or five second pulse uh, a series of pulses mm-hmm. and then it's like a, a, a like a 10 second break and then another series of pulses okay how long does that go on for it depends so if it takes depends on how much energy is required to get the motor cortex to stimulate so um the more energy it requires the longer that session each session takes because you can't you can only instill so much energy into a into the magnet each time so Hmm. usually about 20 minutes maybe 25 minutes just and that's on all. and off five seconds and yep, then 10 seconds exactly. break, five seconds, 10 seconds They break. just sit there for 20 minutes every day for wow. 36 sessions in a row. Every day for Every single days. day, except for weekends, but every day they come oh, okay. in, and that's five, a real commitment. Five days a week for... Five days a week. What's that? Seven yeah, six weeks. weeks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, six every weeks. day they have to come in. It's kind of boring. They just sit there while this thing is hammering. Can they do things? Can read a magazine? Typically or? not. No, no. We want them awake. We want them alert. We want them kind of in one position. We don't want them distracted. They can listen to music and stuff, which is okay. okay. Um, the cool part, though, is this technology has been around for decades, since like the 50s. Huh. The new part, though, is that just like a lot of the magnetic technology, like MRIs, it, the technology has gotten much, much better at focusing beams, which it didn't used to be able to do. Yeah. Just like an MRI machine now is vastly better than it was in the you know, 80s or 90s. Now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice. Now you can really focus those magnetic beams into a much more precise area Yeah. and get much better results. So that's why it's more reproducible and that's why it's approved. And people know? are pretty excited about this te- it's, technology or yeah. uh, you know, this treatment. Yeah. It's really good. You know, the, the people always ask, well, what's the, what's the rate of success long-term? Um, it really depends on the situation, um, but we're at least in the ones that we're seeing, we're seeing good 90% improvement, and a lot of it's lasting, too. That sounds for, incredible. Yeah, for many months and even years. And these what are, are you getting in terms of percent improvement from everything else that you're, you're doing, your it, medication? And, and uh, you know, the medication, the, 
the problem is if you fail one or two medications, which is pretty common, your chance of success with, with further trials goes down and, uh, um, exponentially. So really across the board with medications, I probably say maybe overall 60, 70% success. Mm -hmm. um, if and they're if we, just on meds. Mm -hmm, yeah. yeah. And if we find enough medications, um, sometimes you can kind of dumb it down to the point where you feel like you're getting improvement, but you're sometimes buying side effects like numbness and so forth, you know. Um, whereas with the TMS, the, um, it, it's a much more durable, long-lasting um, benefit, and so that's the cool part with that. Right. Um, and it can I be done with medicines, too, of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's on top of yeah. everything else that they're doing. Exactly. Are you replacing Sometimes. any medications with uh, that yep. treatment? Yep. Oftentimes, if we're lucky, we can get rid of all the medications or go from, like, triple therapy down to a simple monotherapy. Yeah. Um, maybe get rid of some of the antipsychotics that cause weight gain and other side effects, diabetes and so forth. Yeah. And only be able to exist on monotherapy with a, with a serotonin med. What are the side the effects of TMS? Pretty much none. There's the only real side, aside from the discomfort, and it does feel like a woodpecker hammering on your head. Um, it doesn't last though. Like they don't walk out with pain. It's just uncomfortable at the time. Right. Okay. Um, the only other side effects really are if you have seizure disorders. Um, it, there's a potential it could trigger a seizure. Okay. Uh, I think it's been reported once in like some in, in one of the literatures, um, but that was on patients who have seizure disorders and they're not taking their medicines properly. But in and of itself, it won't like trigger seizures. Okay. Um, if you have implanted metal, obviously, then that's a limitation. You know, if there's metal, yeah, um, or whatever. Um, what if you have metal elsewhere in your body? Usually, if it's more than about uh, you know ten centimeters away, you're good to go. Okay. So pacemakers are far enough away. Uh, but some people have leads and stuff in their heads, and that doesn't work, you know. Yeah. But, you know, solid implanted things like teeth and implants like that shouldn't be an issue. Hmm. Um, cool. So that's, yeah. Yeah. So there's really no side. They've, they've done studies in children, which appears to be safe. It's not FDA approved yet, of course. For kids. Um, yeah. Yeah. But how great of an idea is that yeah. if you're a parent and you say, hey, look, Sparing I know it's a little more, of a, yeah, it's a little more life, of a commitment. Yeah. Um, if it works... The best thing is, like, this may be all your kid needs. Maybe you need to do a refresher session in a year or two or so. Or we get away with at least, again, what's the principle? Least amount of medication necessary to get the job done. Right. And if, if that means optimizing all of the non-medication, all of the safe non-medication options, I think that's really important. And this qualifies as one of the safe non-medication options. And I think not maximizing that is just unconscionable. Yeah. Um, the fact that a lot of insurances don't cover it is a real bummer. Um, but again, it's the, the principle is still you really should be doing TMS if it's major depressive disorder um, along with at least the, the basic medications. But, right. You know. So they're doing TMS for a month and a half and then what? Then generally they, they kind of lay off. So uh, sometimes they have to redo it again, do a refresher sort of session, oftentimes six months or a year later. But the, the recurrence rate right now, we believe, is pretty low. Um, I'm basing it on my own patients, and we've only done a couple of handful of patients so far. Are people feeling um, good before the treatment is over, before the six or so yeah, weeks yeah, is they over? Oftentimes they're... within the first week or two, they're starting to get some benefit already. Hmm. which is pretty amazing, oftentimes within a couple of sessions. That's pretty amazing, yeah. Does yeah. it 
have the same effect that you were talking about earlier with serotonin drugs? No, we where don't. It's like well, you we get energy, yeah. but not mood right. elevation. That no, that we don't know. Um, we don't know exactly how it how it actually turns around the brain neurons. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like resetting brain neurons with seizures, people sometimes feel better emotionally after a seizure. Um, because of that reset, if you will, but the exact huh. method of like how that works, nobody really understands, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot less time invasive and a lot less costly and a lot less, you know, there's no amnesia like you get with electroshock therapy. Um, so that's, you know, right. I think a huge yeah. benefit, huge benefit. It sounds cool. You're also doing uh, ketamine nasal sprays and is that the same? Yeah. Same principle. Basically. Yep, the same principle. So I, do, I belong to the American Society of Ketamine Physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are doing IV ketamine, which has some great benefits too. Most insurances don't cover that yet, which is a real bummer. There's been a real big misperception about um, ketamine and the abuse potential of it. Yeah, can and we I, define ketamine yeah. for a moment here? Because I think yeah. people are familiar with it. They want to say, oh, it's a horse tranquilizer. Right. <laughs> That's the thing people know. That's right, exactly. A, in popular culture. And yeah. then it's also a, a party drug for yeah. some. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And so, that's and then I know it is works for uh, depression or at least right. seems to be promising in that right. in that exactly, field. Exactly, exactly. But uh, what else do we need to know? Where about is it? the limitations, you know? Uh, again, when when people have mental health disorders, they're going to seek out self-treatment, which is why they reach for the opioids because opioids will help calm down depression, anxiety, you know? Yeah. Of course, it goes down the hill once you become tolerant and um, and addicted to it. But initially, that's what they like off of it. Um, ketamine is not typically something that you'll see abused very much out there, at least as an addiction specialist, that's not a huge concern. Okay. Yes, it can show up in parties at times, but when it's used properly, that is almost a negligible non-issue. Um, mm-hmm. and, and when you have patients who have nasal ketamine, I've yet to see them abuse that. Like That's not been part of my addiction practice at all. Okay. I don't do the IV ketamine, <clears throat> partially because of the infusion center that you kind of have to have built up right. and the cost of it. You but know? you can do the nasal spray can do the here nasal spray, exactly. in Yep. So how does that work? Someone just there's comes the, in and gets... Yeah. yeah you so me. there's the, the prescription one that you have to get prior authorized. And that one has to be done. You have to get your REMS program for that to get the authorization. And it's done in the office because it's a slightly higher dose. And then the patient is observed and usually do it like once a week or so uh, for a while. And then and then they can go home. The, the other version is a compounded version of ketamine that a lot of the compounding pharmacies are making, which is much, much more affordable. So um, the prescription version has to get authorized. It takes a long time. Um, it, you can get it authorized, but it's like TMS. You have to fit all the criteria Mm -hmm. and then it hits the deductible really hard like a thousand bucks at least and so then that's the other problem is that if patients can't afford it then it's not very helpful so the compounded version that a lot of the compounded pharmacies will create um, will be similar Um, it's a lower potency but you can still get the same amount of milligrams out of it and that is one that they can do at home safely and so you start them on a very low dose um, and basically titrate using it, you know, two or three times a week or so to the effect. Um, and I've seen some pretty treatment-resistant um, depression patients get much better with that too, at least modestly when they failed a lot of other stuff, you know? Yeah. So um, are you doing the ketamine likewise with the 
TMS that you're doing it on top of everything else you that the yes, patient has exactly. got going on. Maybe you're going to exactly. replace a medication with That's it. That's right. That's right. Are you doing both the TMS and nasal spray on the yep. same patient? Mm-hmm. You can absolutely. Yeah. So I've got one guy who's just had a really difficult time. He's got major depressive disorder. I've got him on two different serotonin meds. I've got him on three different antipsychotics. Um, as well as seizure medications like lithium to because lithium can help with major depressive disorder as well. Yeah. In addition, augmenting with um, kind of um, out-of-the-box therapies for major depressive disorder, which include Adderall mm-hmm. and even thyroid medication, which have been well-established for augmentation for depression, mm-hmm. and now the ketamine nasal spray. So all of that has brought his PHQ level, which is his kind of his um, depression rating scale, okay. from very severe, like 23. It might have improved it a couple of points down to 21. Not amazing. That's mm-hmm. a lot of medication. Yeah. So we got TMS approved for him. Um, with the TMS, we've gotten him down to about 14, 13, which is an amazing drop uh, improvement for him, and have been able to get rid of some of the antipsychotic meds already. So while they're getting better, once we get improvement, then I start unraveling some of the other medications that have been on board, you know, uh, because they have other side effects. You know, for example, this guy literally gained 50 pounds on Zyprexa. Yeah, wow. And that's a lot. Yep. That puts a hit on your, you know, mood and your self-esteem and so forth. So that's going to be the first one that we're unraveling now and hopefully the other ones in the future too, you know. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. You gave me such a good transition when you started talking about opioids because I wanted to talk about the uh, addiction uh, aspect of what you do. Um, I also kind of want to ask before we get into that just about um, the benefits um, on mental health and depression of just physical exercise. So yeah. I know you do a lot of preventive medicine and yeah. just discussion and education with patients. Absolutely. What are we telling people about like the evidence-based aspect of yeah. exercise on mental health? The exercise is critical because it does build up your own natural endorphins, your own anti-inflammatories for your own moods. Is it the be-all, end-all? No, of course not, but it's a component of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And some people will ask me, well, I want to only do the natural things, proper diet, getting proper sleep, you know? Cat in my psychiatry said, if people aren't sleeping well, all the fancy-schmancy medications won't appear to be working either, so sleep is critical. Exercise is just another component. I've had patients come in saying, well, I run, you know, five miles a day, and I'm still depressed. Yes, great you're doing that. But where's the other things at? You know, where's the rest of the recipe? Yeah. And we can't say, hey, you know, of all the non-medication treatments, which one's more important? Getting proper sleep or getting proper exercise or eating well? Like, hard right. to say. But I would, we're I would cook, argue, we're cooking a soup. We need yeah, all the ingredients. You need yeah. all. You need all the appropriate ones. Right. But there's very few disorders, I would argue, where proper sleep and proper exercise and and, and so forth and proper diet don't play kind of an equally important role, you know? And so that's a really important aspect is to say, you know, even though you may not notice a benefit, I don't want you to stop exercising, still get that 30 minutes a day, go do something. doesn't matter what you're doing, just something that gets your heart rate up that you enjoy doing, you know, that's all that matters. And keep it going, even if you're not seeing, it's like cooking. The recipe is not perfect, hang in there, just stay put with it, you know, we'll get there, you know? Mm-hmm. 
and people get impatient because something doesn't work and then they throw the towel in. It's how I cook, you know? When two recipes, <laughs> two things don't work, you're like, oh, I throw the towel in. But yeah. then a friend of mine who's a chef, he's like, oh, no, just hold on, just be patient. We've got five more things to add and then you'll, you'll see it. You'll see it develop, you know? Yeah, I feel you on that one for yeah. sure. <laughs> and most of us don't have the patience level for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to uh, get into some, uh, the topic of addiction. Yeah. And, uh, and we can definitely talk about it within the context of mental health or yeah. mental yeah. health within the context of addiction. Yeah. Um, but can we just define what addiction is let me give you the story I'll, I'll tell you exactly how it develops because it's not really a definition there is a definition it's doing something you're not supposed to be doing spending time money and effort doing it when you know you should be doing something else like that's the short of it you know okay but here's the real story here's Do the it. real story oh, yeah it hit me yeah if you i ask all my patients who come in who are on heroin or whatever i say how did this all start roll the clock back dialing me back to day one yep. and I'm talking age 12 13 14 the first time you did whatever anything ever at all ever ever and every single patient almost without fail I would say 99% of my especially my heroin patients will say oh it started at age 12 or 13 12 and 13 is the most common number that I get of all right and So much great stuff from Dr. Edric. Thank you to him. Thank you as a listener for listening to part one. Definitely stay tuned for part two because we're going to dive deep into addiction medicine. So thanks for listening. Peace. Just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Thanks for listening to the Family Medicine Podcast. Remember to subscribe, follow, like, or whatever you do to show your dignity. Tune in next time. Her uterus was the universe. And it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized. Went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires and the stories well known. History ticks along like a metronome. And then I came to be walk talk and throw stuff all grown up i got a job now and showing up i'm sleep deprived i'm misaligned my appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time and then i met you lovely and smooth you quickly removed my modern man's blues i want to celebrate every breath that i take because i'm afraid i'm dreaming and i don't want to wait so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe, but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? younger i met god and i hugged her she said hey baby instead of getting lost within how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin stop begin let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road going inch by inch don't sprint take it slow protect your soul travel long and far but make sure to come home because the love that's here is what keeps you going 
gives you the power and the freedom to grow. Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first. It was simpler when the uterus was so big. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. And then I met you. The uterus was my universe. Sunshine and rain. The uterus was my Walk universe. Walk a mile in my moccasins. The uterus was my universe. Keeps you going. The uterus was my universe. Sure to come home. The uterus was my universe. And then I met you. The uterus was my universe. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When the uterus was my universe. So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna 